Well, hello there. How's it going? It's good to see you and welcome back to another installment of Closing Arguments. I am your host and moderator, Ryan Ruff, and as always, we have the star of our show and Mr. John Razumich, or many know him by Jack, joining us from Razumich and Associates to dive into another criminal law-related discussion. That's what we tackle here on the show. We lean into Jack's experiences from inside and outside the courtroom, and we're tackling a different criminal law-related topic each time we get together on this show. And today, we got a good one dialed up for you guys. Uh, you know, today, if you caught our last episode, we took a nice little dive into these different legal myths that exist. We got some great feedback from you guys, our audience, our viewers, uh, on different myths that you've just heard, whether it was through conversation with friends and family or saw online that, you know, we put a lot of myths to bed in our last episode, but today we're going to take a little bit of a different angle towards another criminal law related discussion. Today, what we're doing is we're, we're identifying affirmative defenses in Indiana. Now, many of you who are frequent, you know, viewers and listeners of the show, you know, that Jack practice and, and you know Jack and Razumich and Associates as a whole practice criminal law cases not only throughout the greater Indianapolis area but also the greater state of Indiana. So we're diving into different affirmative defenses that exist throughout Indiana. But let's go ahead and bring Jack on now and let's get right into this topic and let's start at that high level overview on really what an affirmative defense is. Jack, good to see you. Welcome aboard today. Hey Ryan, good to be back as always. Yeah, no, always a good time when we get together, and uh, I'm excited about today's topic. I know you've probably got a lot to unpack for us here in this idea of affirmative defenses in Indiana. I'm sure you're familiar with these on a very high level. So let's just set the scene, if we will, for our audience. When we say an affirmative defense, what are we talking about here? An affirmative defense is a, a type of pleading that you would make as a defendant in a criminal case that argues that you are not responsible for the charge conduct. As a practical matter, the general policy is as a defendant in a criminal action, you're not required to prove or explain anything. It's always the prosecution's burden of proof beyond reasonable doubt to actually establish two very important things. Uh, the first is that a crime actually happened. And then second, that the defendant who's on trial for that crime actually committed the crime. What an affirmative defense does is it kind of throws a bit of a monkey wrench into that schedule because what you're doing when you are making an affirmative defense is you're admitting that you actually committed the act that you're on trial for, but you had some sort of legally justifiable reason for it, some sort of legal excuse that makes it not a crime. Uh, that's what an affirmative defense is. You're not denying that you did what you're on trial for. You're just basically saying this is why I'm not actually legally guilty of it, even though I did it. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And that's, you know, we're going to cover a lot of different types of affirmative defenses that you've seen in your time. And, but as we're still kind of staying high level here, Jack, talk to us a little bit about this idea of where, you know, the burden then shifts from, you know, between the state and the defendant once an affirmative defense is, is out there and open and in front of everybody in a given case. Sure. The dynamic changes, again, like I said, when, when you throw an affirmative defense out there, you're throwing a monkey wrench, you're admitting, yes, I in fact did this. So that changes what does or doesn't need to be proved beyond reasonable doubt for the most part. Since you're admitting that you committed the act, what the state's burden to prove at that point in time shifts from proving that the act actually happened, it shifts to proving that the affirmative defense is not applicable. 
there are a couple of instances where the burden is actually shifted from the state to the defendant to prove their affirmative defense by what's referred to as preponderance of the evidence. Laws, uh, the, the burden of proof, there, there are three major burdens of proof in the state of Indiana. Uh, there's preponderance of the evidence, there's clear and convincing evidence, and there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Criminal trials, by by and large, they are at that proof beyond a reasonable doubt situation. That's that's the general burden of proof the prosecution needs to meet to actually get their conviction. If you're making an affirmative defense and it's up to the state's responsibility to uh, disprove the affirmative defense beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, that'll be for things like self-defense or a mistake of fact or a duress. We'll get into those into the next section. But there are a couple of affirmative defenses that actually require the defendant to prove something. Now, the defendant only has to prove those affirmative defenses by preponderance of the evidence, which is that lower standard. The way that is typically described is preponderance of the evidence, for the most part, if you think of it as being... 50% plus one, more likely than not, that's what your proof by preponderance of the evidence is. So if you're able to get one of those affirmative defenses that does require the defendant to prove the defense, that seems a little bit daunting because again, you, you, you shouldn't really feel like you have to prove, excuse me, you shouldn't feel like you have to prove anything. Mm -hmm. But um, if it's a situation where you know, your burden of production, your burden of proof is is 50% plus one more likely than not. That's actually a really powerful tool that you have as a defendant that makes that a little bit more of a palatable concept uh, to pursue those types of affirmative defenses. Sure, sure. Uh, a really interesting topic here because there are so many variations and types of affirmative defenses. And then obviously every all the different, you know, in, inner workings and facets of a given case, sure, they factor into what that affirmative defense type is going to be. So let's let's start kind of rattling off what some of these types of affirmative defenses are, Jack. And and if you have any experiences with any of these particular ones, we'd love to hear them. So start start high level with us and we'll work granular. What's the first type of affirmative defense that you typically find. Indiana recognizes a total of 10 different affirmative defenses. Nine of those are what are referred to as statutory affirmative defenses. That means that the state legislature has specifically listed nine defenses that are available to you as a defendant in uh, a criminal prosecution. The nine statutory uh, affirmative defenses are legal authority, self-defense, involuntary intoxication, insanity, mistake of fact, duress, entrapment, abandonment, and battered spouse syndrome. Battered spouse syndrome isn't actually referred to as battered spouse syndrome in the Indiana Code. Um, it's mental disease or defect as a result of abuse. It's effectively the battered spouse syndrome defense. Those nine are actually laid out in the Indiana Code as being statutory defenses that you can affirmatively plead and argue absolves you of any legal culpability. The 10th affirmative defense that's recognized by Indiana law is the defense of necessity. Necessity is considered to be a common law defense. That means that it predates the concept of statutory law. We just always understood that sometimes things are necessary. So that is a defense that's available to you. It still has some very formal pleadings that need to go along with it and some very formal ways that you need to dress that up and present that. Um, but it is it, it is a creation of the courts. It's a creation of the common law. Uh, it is a recognized defense. 
um, it, it's just not statutory. It, it's kind of one of those things like everyone knows that we have the defense of necessity, so we didn't mm-hmm. need to write it down specifically. Sure. Got it. Got it. Well, I appreciate you kind of laying, giving us that lay of the land, the 10 that are really existing today. Let's start right at the top and let's work our way through these different types and where they pop up with different cases. Let's start with legal authority. Walk us through this one. Legal authority is basically the argument that your actions would not be a crime if you had legal authority to do it. The most common way that you'll usually see this, and this is where I've used this defense in the past, is on the issue of parents disciplining their children. Um, Spanking and corporal punishment tends to continue to be a hot-button topic. Uh, There are a lot of people out there who... Uh, in their opinion, don't believe that there's ever any reason to uh, discipline a, a child with physical uh, physical force or physical uh, means. Um, it is still legally recognized as an authority that parents have in the state of Indiana. So um, a battery on a minor charge, for example, which I, I would be knowingly or intentionally touching a person under the age of 14 in a rude, insolent, or angry manner, that would normally be a crime. However, if you have the legal authority as a parent or a guardian or someone who is acting in what's referred to as in parento locus, uh, which is a, a fancy Latin term that basically means you are, you are the stand-in parent at this point in time, you have the legal authority to exercise physical discipline on your children if you believe that to be appropriate or if you believe that to be necessary. So under those circumstances, that's the type of situation where legal authority does exist for a defense of battery on a minor. You can make the argument that I have this legal permission to discipline this child, so therefore it's a crime for you to hit my kid, but if I hit my kid, uh, it's okay. There are limits to that, obviously. Um, your, your ability as a parent to engage in uh, corporal punishment or, or, uh, or physical restraints of your children, there are limits. It, it does have to be proportional. You can't just, you know, take a whip and, 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 or a belt and, and flay your kids back or leave them with permanent injuries or permanent scarring. Uh, but most incidents is a battery on a minor. If it is your child, you do get to claim the defense of legal authority and that prevents that from being a crime. Legal authority is one of those burdens that the state has to disprove beyond a reasonable doubt. So again, you have admitted that you've committed the act, in this case, the Battery Act. And what that does at that point in time is the state's burden now has to be to prove beyond reasonable doubt that you did not have the legal authority to engage in that type of discipline or that type of criminal act. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not, I, I am, I, I'm sure there are other examples out there. I can't think of any. Um, Mm -hmm. But legal authority, we typically find in the context, and that's certainly where I've used it in the past, in the context of um, a parent who is accused of over-disciplining their child. Mm -hmm. That's the most common place where you would find that defense. Sure, sure. And and that's an an example I think that so many people are familiar with. Just a a pretty universal example there for us, Jack. So appreciate that. Let's move to our next one. And this one I know is a little bit loaded. We spent a whole lot, you know, really a whole episode of this show diving into self-defense cases as a whole. The next type of affirmative defense, self-defense. Walk us through this one. Self-defense, as uh, as you pointed out, Ryan, we did, in fact, do an entire hour-long episode on yes. this. Uh, if you have not seen or heard that episode, I do encourage you to go back and listen to it. It'll be a lot more involved than what we're going into right now. 
um, maybe just listen to it. Some of the earlier episodes, our, our audio, our video quality was not up to snuff, but it, it, it does listen really well. So I do encourage you to like, subscribe, listen, all that fun jazz. That said, um, self-defense is a statutory defense. What is involved in a self-defense pleading is, again, you are not denying that you committed whatever the act is, whether that, whether that act of force was uh, taking another person's life or simply hitting them or touching them in some way, shape, or form. Self-defense is arguing that you had a reasonable fear of the use of imminent force on your person or on a third party. And as a result, you were acting in defense of them by using a proportional amount of force. Um, there's That's a really big tongue twister situation. Uh, the, the short version of it, to try to explain it in the simplest way possible, is if you or a third party is about to be the victim of force, if someone is potentially attacking you or appears to be about to attack you, you are authorized under Indiana law to use a reasonable amount of force to repel that attack on yourself or on a third person. The force has to be proportional. If someone is swinging uh, at you with a fist, you can't probably take a gun out and just shoot them because that is, that is a disproportionate result and a disproportionate use of force. If, however, a person is swinging a knife at you at that point in time, it would be considered potentially reasonable to shoot them uh, because a knife is a deadly weapon, whereas a fist, maybe, maybe not, depending on a lot of other circumstances. The rules with self-defense are, um, it, it's another one of the situations where the state has the burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you were using more force than necessary to repel the attack or that the use of force was objectively unreasonable. The, the very complicated thing you run into with the self-defense claim is the jury has to view the claim of self-defense from the perspective of the defendant under the circumstances that existed. Um, if you think about a jury as a Monday morning quarterback, the idea is that the jurors have to put themselves in the shoes of the defendant claiming self-defense who uh, has to convince them that um, the use of force was reasonable under the totality of the circumstances. The, the, the belief and the use of force has to be objectively reasonable from the defendant's subjective perspective. Um, Honestly, we 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 did go into this in a lot of greater detail in the in the episode earlier. It might have been like the fourth or fifth episode. Um, go back, go back and listen to that. It's a much bigger discussion. It's a lot more involved. Uh, we kind of really did dive into that and dissect that a lot better. But for the purposes of today's episode, that's your kind of quick overview on the issue of self defense. Whoops, I was muted. My mistake. I'll just take it from here. Perfect. Well, well, Jack, our next one is a, kind of an interesting one. This idea of involuntary intoxication, uh, probably a phrase that many of us haven't really heard out there, involuntary intoxication. But walk me through what this means and how this can play out as an affirmative defense. Involuntary intoxication, this is, this is the first defense that shifts the burden to the defendant. Okay. Involuntary intoxication, if you plead involuntary intoxication, it is your responsibility as the defendant to prove by preponderance of the evidence that your state of intoxication is a result of an involuntary uh, situation. 
Intoxicated is a legal state of being. It has a specific definition. In Indiana, it means under the influence of drugs, alcohol, a controlled substance, or I think five or six other things they have on the list these days uh, that results in a loss, uh, an impairment of thought and action and a loss of your normal motor faculties. Most intoxication, of course, is very voluntary. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, if you go out to a bar and you drink yourself into a blackout state, you're not going to be able to make the argument that you were involuntarily intoxicated. <laughs> sure. You were you were taking product that you knew could cause an intoxicating effect. Where involuntary intoxication can come up, and we actually just had a trial where this was an issue. Um, it did not go well. Uh, it, it was at least a novel defense. The judge and the prosecutor were both fascinated by our efforts at arguing involuntary intoxication. Uh, what happened is that particular case involved a, a defendant who had a uh, bacterial strain in his in his intestinal lining that created a situation uh, referred to as auto brewery syndrome. The idea is that uh, much like how a diabetic needs insulin shots to regulate their blood sugar content, uh, the idea behind um, uh, auto brewery syndrome is that the, the bacteria and the, the flora in your stomach and your intestines, as they're breaking down carbohydrates, as they're breaking down sugars, can effectively create a fermentation in your stomach that creates alcohol. That's a, that's a byproduct of breaking down wow. sugars and carbohydrates. Um, our argument was in this particular case was that our defendant was not voluntarily intoxicated because he had a medical condition that rendered him that, that was unknown to him at the time that effectively rendered him into an intoxicated state. And that is that is why he was uh, operating a vehicle while intoxicated, because that involuntary chemical effect inside of his body. Part of the problem that we had with that case is it was a true and accurate fact that prior to this discovery that he had this, this stomach issue, um, he did, in fact, actually consume a beer. It, it was one of those rare things. We were able to track it down. We, we found his receipts. We found the, the waitresses that served him. And he quite literally did have one beer. It, is, it was one of the first times that someone actually just had one beer. The problem is you have to have clean hands for involuntary intoxication. Mm. You know, if it had been a situation where, you know, he went to uh, Bob Evans and ate a yeah. stack of pancakes you know, there's there's no alcohol there. Sure, sure. But the breakdown of the carbohydrates, if it caused that effect, he would be able to claim, okay, well, I consumed something that was, mm -hmm. you know, non-alcoholic, not likely to produce this result. Mm -hmm. You know, my hands are clean on this. And have Only, the receipts to prove it. And he had the receipts to prove it. R right, um, right. Under this circumstance, in this particular case, what ended up happening is because he did consume a product that he knew was going to cause intoxication. The fact that it created a hyper intoxication was not okay. going to be a defense on the involuntary intoxication situation. Mm. So Makes you do sense. have to have clean hands for it. Um, but it, it was an interesting argument. Yeah, it's yeah, one of the absolutely. Very few circumstances that I've seen where involuntary intoxication might have worked, mm -hmm. and um, it, the way that that went is, you know, we had to file the involuntary intoxication defense. And it became our burden of production by preponderance of the evidence that 50% plus one right. to show that the intoxication was involuntary. 
Um, mm -hmm. Again, the state showed that yeah. he had actively actually consumed alcohol beforehand, and, and that kind of negated that. Sure, um, sure. It's it's pretty rare. Um, mm -hmm. We we've had we have had more than our fair share of cases over the last 16 years where people have said, well, you know, they just kept giving me alcohol over and over again, or I don't remember drinking that much. Someone sure, must have slipped sure. me a roofie. It's like, ah, I'm pretty sure you probably just had that much to drink. You don't, you can't claim that you started drinking and then yeah. try to claim involuntary intoxication, especially in that, in that case, the one beer is what, yeah. what was his downfall. Um, exactly. So no, that's a great example. I appreciate you sharing that case with us. I'm going to, I'm going to now flip the script on this one and move to the next one here. And that's probably a little more involved, I would imagine. And that's the affirmative defense of insanity. Walk us through this because boy, is this one that we see played out in so many TV shows and movies and whatnot. Insanity is such a hot topic in a courtroom. I feel like it gets mm -hmm. a lot of eyeballs. Walk us through this one, Jack. Insanity is, again, one of those defenses like self-defense where we could probably do an entire hour-long episode and not cover every aspect of it. Sure. Um, the rules for uh, not guilty by reason of insanity, they, they probably, like everything else, vary between jurisdictions. I'm going to give you the Indiana perspective because, of course, as we always mention, that's where I'm licensed. That's what I know. In Indiana, um, the defense of not guilty by reason of insanity is raised by filing a formal notice with the court. It's one of two defenses that need to be affirmatively pled. Most affirmative defenses, you can just spring them on the prosecutor at the last possible second, as long as there's what's referred to as a scintilla of evidence supporting the defense. Insanity requires a formal notification to the court that I am going to pursue the defense of not guilty by reason of insanity. In Indiana, what will happen is the court will appoint two doctors to examine the defendant. They will appoint a psychologist and they will appoint a psychiatrist, so a PhD and an MD. They will make an examination of the defendant to determine whether or not the defendant was first suffering from a mental disease or defect that is recognized in the DSM. That's the uh, psychological Bible of, of mental health disorders. So the first thing they examine is whether or not this person was suffering from a mental disease or defect. The second thing that they will do is they will make a determination as to whether or not that mental disease or defect prevented the defendant from appreciating the wrongfulness of their actions at the time that it was committed. So to throw it back to an earlier episode, if you'll recall from the Hot Dog Man episode, there was an insanity defense that was raised in that, and the court appointed uh, a psychologist and a psychiatrist, and they both found that uh, Mr. Kadrovac was suffering from narcissistic personality disorder, which is a recognized mental disease and defect, mm -hmm. but that mental disease or defect, the narcissistic personality disorder, did not prevent him uh, from appreciating the wrongfulness of his actions at the time that they occurred. So that was that was kind of your 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 floor mark as far as as the insanity defense. Just because the court appointed doctors do not believe that a defendant is insane does not mean that a defendant who has raised this defense cannot continue to pursue it. Okay. The court will appoint its own expert witnesses as court officers. As a defendant, you can bring your own doctors in to testify about that. So you could have a trial where insanity is an issue and the two court appointed doctors will say he's perfectly sane. 
but you can put your own witnesses as a defendant on to say, no, no, I've examined him. The reason the court appointed doctors are wrong is reason X, Y, and Z. The defendant is insane. On the flip side, if the court appointed doctors say that um, the defendant was insane, the prosecution actually can hire their own doctors as well to argue that those doctors are wrong and he's actually sane. Mm. What happens if you do proceed with the insanity trial? This is the other uh, burden-shifting affirmative defense that we have in the Indiana Code. Uh, the burden of production for the defense of insanity is the defendant is required to prove by preponderance of the evidence that he actually was insane. Um, so under those circumstances, you know, if the doctors both say he was insane, that makes it pretty easy for the defendant to say, no, see, he's totally insane and not guilty by reason of insanity. Sure thing. Um, mm -hmm. It is not a get out of jail free card. All of us are, are familiar with Batman. Thanks right. to the, the multiple cartoons, multiple movies, things of that nature. Um, the running gag in Batman, of course, is that all of his villains are insane. Mm -hmm. They go to Arkham Asylum, and that avoids being sent to actual prison. And, of course, they escape from Arkham Asylum every 30 days because the right. <laughs> In Indiana, if you are found not guilty by reason of insanity, the court has a secondary aspect of the trial. Mm -hmm. where the determination is made as to whether or not the defendant represents a danger to himself or the community. And if they represent a danger to themselves or the community, what happens is they will be involuntarily committed to the state hospital at Logansport. Okay. And they stay there until they are deemed to be sane. Mm -hmm. That can be a very, very long time. I was just thinking uh, that. Hmm. I have a client right now. We did do an insanity trial um, a number of years back. I want to say we did an insanity trial about 10 years ago. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit on that one because if we do a longer <laughs> episode on insanity, I want to use that as effectively sure. the case study to kind of work our way through that. Um, keep our cards close to the vest. Exactly. <laughs> he's actually he, he is unfortunately still at the state hospital in Logansport. It's been about 10 years. The offense that he would have been convicted of, the offense that they were that he was charged with, if he had been convicted and if he had received the maximum sentence, he actually would be due for release right now. But because he is still considered to be insane by the court system, he's actually still in custody at Logansport. And wow. there's not a lot that can really be done about that. It's up to the doctors mm -hmm. to make that declaration. Man, man. So insanity really there. I mean, there's a ton that goes into that. And yeah, as we're absolutely. sitting here talking about it, Jack, I, I, I have a feeling we might be diving into this one a little deeper uh, down the road for our audience, but uh, a lot to go into the insanity one. I appreciate you, you know, using some of those examples. This next one is, is one that makes me scratch my head a little bit. And this is the idea of a mistake of facts. What, what do we mean by mistake of fact and how does that play a role in, in, in affirmative defense? Mistake of fact is it, it's not ignorance of the law being an excuse. That that's okay. I, I can certainly see that being the sure. initial concept of like, well, I thought that ignorance of the law is not an excuse. <laughs> it's not an excuse. Just because you don't know it's against the law doesn't mean they're not going to bring you up beyond charges with it. Where mistake of fact comes up, and and I have never seen one of these cases. I, I don't okay. have a personal frame of reference to to describe this. The best that I could provide to you would be a hypothetical style situation. So for example, if you know if you're walking around 
with a sledgehammer slung over your back like John Henry. You're, you're just kind of working on the rails. <laughs> and someone comes up to you and says, hey, um, you know, I really need for you to um, use your giant sledgehammer and, and break down the patio on my backyard. This is my house. This is my patio. Um, I want you to break down this patio with your giant sledgehammer. Uh, here's a hundred bucks to do that. If you were then to take your sledgehammer and and bust up the patio and the actual homeowner came home and said, wait a minute, what are you doing busting up my patio? This isn't her house. This is my house. You've just destroyed my property. That would be a defense that you would argue is a mistake of fact. You would be able to argue that you were acting under a reasonable belief that the person that that represented that this was their home um it was in fact their home you were acting again technically under legal authority there's a little bit of an overlap there between legal authority and mistake of fact mm -hmm. and that you had permission to actually do this work it is probably of all of the affirmative defenses out there i would say that mistake of fact is probably the rarest one that's going to pop up because it, it does involve an argument that you were completely unaware mm, right that your actions were illegal or could be constituted yeah. illegal um and like i said it's, it's a little bit of an overlap with the legal authority issue that's about the closest i can i can explain right I, I, yeah, that one no. I don't have time reference for yeah, I would imagine mistake of fact, obviously a, a tougher one to see really play out in a courtroom. But let's move into the next one, which I, you know, you and I had chatted about earlier before we pressed the record button that I know pops up a lot in drug cases, really. And that's this idea of duress. Talk to us about this affirmative, uh, you know, defense of duress. Duress is an affirmative defense that argues that you committed a criminal act under the threat of imminent serious bodily injury, either to yourself or to a third party. Uh, the idea is that effectively you were forced into breaking the law. And as you pointed out, it is very common in drug offenses, especially at higher levels or, or even federal level drug offenses. These are multi-people operations and uh, not everyone wants to be part of it, but you, no one wants to end up dead because they crossed a gang member. Right, right. So what happens is these people are basically forced into being uh, part of this drug trade uh, or committing these drug crimes. You'll see that with, uh, they refer to them as mules, drug traffickers or people who are carrying drugs from one place to another on behalf of a gang. They're being told that, that, uh, that they'll be killed if they don't do that. Uh, we actually have handled a duress case in the past. We had a case in Shelby County last year where um, the situation involved uh, our client, the defendant, was driving a vehicle. Her on-again, off-again uh, love interest um, was in the passenger seat and was a, a regular uh, bad guy you know, in, involved in, in drug trafficking, involved in uh, other type of illegal activities. They got stopped by the police, and, and I can't remember off the top of my head what they were stopped for, whether it was a speeding offense, whether it was a turn signal violation. Um, either way, they ended up getting stopped. The, the passenger took a gun out of his packet and quite, uh, pocket and quite literally shoved it down my client's pants and told her, hold this gun, uh, don't say anything about it, or I'll kill you. This is a pretty sizable problem for two reasons. You know, one, of course, she's just being threatened with uh, hold on to this gun or you're dead. The second is um, 
she had a prior felony conviction. And in fact, she had a prior felony burglary conviction because she was a drug addict. She was, she was breaking into houses to feed her habit. Um, burglary though represents what's referred to as a serious violent felony offense in the state of Indiana and a serious violent felon who is found to be in possession of a firearm would be charged normally with a level four felony offense punishable by two to 12 years in prison. So the defense with that case was built around the concept that she only was in possession of this gun because it was forced on her and she was threatened with serious bodily injury if she didn't conceal the gun from the police. So that was the defense that we pursued with that case. Um, I am pleased to say that it was successful. It was a, it was a successful defense at the end of the day. Um, and that was, uh, that was one of those things that, that really helped with that. But that's, that's kind of what you're looking at with regards to the defense mm -hmm. argument, dress argument is I would not have done this crime had I not been threatened or had my family right. not been threatened. Um, it, it's a very powerful defense. It is mm -hmm. uh, behind self-defense. It is actually one of the stronger affirmative defenses that I believe that we have. Mm -hmm. because it's very easy to imply and kind of get across to the jury that you were scared for your safety. And that's why you right. took these actions. Right, right. I, I was just thinking the same thing. I would imagine this one kind of stacks up close to self-defense. Obviously action wasn't taken, you know, because of that feeling of duress, right. but just purely right. the claim of duress exists. So, all right, let's shift gears. The next one on the list, entrapment. We've anybody you know close to criminal law or enjoys court shows or this and that. They've heard this term, but what does it mean in your eyes, Jack? This idea of entrapment in terms of the affirmative defense. Entrapment is probably the most misunderstood affirmative defense in Indiana law. The mm -hmm. idea with entrapment is. The, the argument, the affirmative defense is that um, the defendant would not have committed a criminal act had it not been for the urging and persuasion of law enforcement. Entrapment is not being presented the opportunity to commit a crime by law enforcement and then taking it. You have to actually show that but for law enforcement's actions, you would not have committed a criminal offense. In fact, um, one of the things that the state can show to prove that entrapment isn't applicable is that the defendant was predisposed to actually commit this crime. Um, mm -hmm. We get this, we used to back in, back in the more wild west days of the internet, when you had uh, online prostitution sites like, uh, like Backpage and things like that, um, you would see scrawled into the the ads, you know, um, you you agree by contacting me that you are not affiliated with law enforcement and that violating this represents entrapment. It does not represent entrapment. If you were going to sell sex, you were going to do that whether or not the person that contacted you was a police officer or not, and that is against the law. So it is not an entrapment because you are already predisposed to commit that prostitution offense. Same situation if you sell to an undercover cop or you sell to a snitch. You were already predisposed to sell those drugs. That was something that was going to happen. You were going to sell those drugs to somebody. The fact that a snitch or an undercover officer gave you the opportunity to sell to them, which made it easier for them to arrest you, did not represent the crime of entrapment. Mm -hmm. I have actually had... Um, I, I actually have had an entrapment defense once. 
it was a it was a misdemeanor it was a misdemeanor case it was a misdemeanor um public indecency case um what happened is a law enforcement officer who um i i don't remember his name after all these years he he very clearly probably did something to piss the chief of police off um because he was sent to a, a park here in Indiana where they had been getting Indianapolis, where they've been getting complaints about uh, inappropriate behavior. Um, and this cop zeroed in on my client and, you know, kept flirting with him, kept trying to, to get him to engage in, in uh, gay sex acts. Um, at one point in time, the, the officer actually, grabbed my client's, you know, uh, genitals and started fondling him, them. And at that point in time, that's when my client decides like, Oh, all right, well, uh, I wasn't planning on this, but you know, whatever. So, you know, let's go to town. Uh, and then he was arrested as soon as, um, you know, he went to go touch the officer's genitals and it became an interesting trial situation because, um, we argued, um, unfortunately this, unfortunately this one did not work. Um, this this was one of the the affirmative defense cases that we lost. Uh, the judge did not agree with our argument that um, there was no evidence that showed that the defendant was predisposed to committing sex acts in the park, but for the officer effectively creating a situation where a sex act was coerced. Um, I still think they got that wrong, mm -hmm. uh, but I suppose if I thought judges did their job right all the time, I wouldn't have a job. So <laughs> there's that. Very fair point. Gotcha. All right. So we hear you on entrapment. Moving to the next one is in abandonment. Where does this come into play, Jack? Because I feel like this one might have some interesting, uh, you know, kind of protocols that go along with this. Abandonment is one of those affirmative defenses. You're going to find that a little bit more commonly in a conspiracy style case. Uh, a conspiracy hmm. case is one where there's a little bit more in the way of active planning there's a little bit more in the way of actual intent to commit a criminal act. So for the abandonment defense to work, you have to argue that you completely and voluntarily abandon your effort at furthering a criminal action. So if, for example, um, you and your friends decide to rob a bank and your assigned role is the getaway driver, if you wake up and decide, you know what, I, I'm not going through with this. This seems, this seems ridiculous. This seems silly. This seems stupid. And you don't leave your house with your getaway car to go pick your buddies up to take them to the bank. That would be considered an abandonment. You have, you have abandoned the conspiracy. You have abandoned the criminal activity. Even if your friends went through with robbing the bank on their own without you, they would not be able to come back and get you as part of the conspiracy because you abandoned your efforts in that. Now, the, the abandonment, as I said, has to be voluntary. And the law specifically holds that the abandonment is not involuntary. Sorry, the abandonment is not voluntary if circumstances that were not known to you when you started on your criminal effort increase the possibility of detection or apprehension or if it made the crime more difficult. So if you were to go to your local Walmart with the intention of shoplifting and when you got to the Walmart uh, completely intending to get engaged in the shoplifting offense 
and you found that there was a uh, live security guard who is standing right there next to, uh, let's say, the, the video game aisle, preventing people from shoplifting video games. That, you know, if you abandon the, the goal then, that would not necessarily constitute voluntary abandonment under the way Indiana interprets that law. And again, this goes back to the issue of like where the conspiracy comes in, because if you're one part of the conspiracy, you abandoning your portion of it because, oh, it turns out there are more guards here. I guess I'm not going to go through with this, but your colleagues go through with it. You still went there with the concept of committing a criminal act. You did not right. abandon it voluntarily. Um, another thing about the the concept of how the abandonment statute works, if you just postpone your criminal actions, that's not considered to be abandonment. So okay. if, you go the, if you go to the Walmart completely with the goal of trying to steal video games um, and you see, okay, well, there's a guard here. I'll bet the guard's not here tomorrow. Let's come back tomorrow and steal video games. If you get arrested within the next 24 hours as part of that conspiracy to steal video games from Walmart – you haven't abandoned it. The fact that you didn't go through that day doesn't right. mean you weren't planning on doing it. No. Also, don't steal video games from Walmart. They're, it's yes, it's a lot more that. expensive to hire an attorney than it is just pay for the video. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. Well said, Jack. Uh, we got two more in terms of these affirmative defenses. This is the, the final of the ninth that you mentioned are that are you know big in, in the state of Indiana as a whole. Let's go into the battered spouse syndrome. Battered spouse syndrome is a newer affirmative defense. I believe that it's only about maybe five or six years old at this point in time. It straddles it, it straddles both the self-defense as well as the insanity to defenses. Um, the reason that this affirmative defense kind of got created is because uh, people who would suffer the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder from abusive relationships, um, there's that old argument about like sometimes people just snap as a result of repeated abuse. So that doesn't necessarily excuse what would otherwise be a criminal act um, because post-traumatic stress disorder, it, it may not necessarily rise to the level of being unable to appreciate the wrongfulness of your actions most of the time, but in the heat of the moment. It, it's almost a form of temporary insanity is the easiest way of describing it. To proceed with a battered spouse syndrome, affirmative defense, um, you have to notify the prosecutor's office at least 20 days before trial that you were going to be pursuing the battered spouse defense. It does not require the appointing of a psychologist and a psychiatrist by the court. If you want to bring in mental health professionals to testify on your behalf as the defendant, that would be on your dime. There are not going to be any court-appointed experts who are going to testify on that. If you establish that you are suffering a mental disease or defect as a result of an abusive relationship, you can argue that that mental disease or defect made you incapable of appreciating the wrongfulness of your actions um, at the time of the alleged criminal mm -hmm. act. And if the argument is that um, if the argument is that it, it's some sort of battery related offense, like you know you shoot your abuser or something on those lines, or or you uh, you beat your abuser with you know a baseball bat. Uh, it, that then shifts back to the self-defense concept like, okay, was was the force that you used against this person proportional to the damage they had done to you previously? 
I've seen a couple of these. I have not worked on any of them myself, but it is one of those things that very heavily straddles that line. The 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 thing that makes this aspect of of the better of the mental health issue different than a traditional insanity defense is if you are found to be not guilty by reason of battered spouse, which I, is not again, it's not the technical term for it, but that's just the easiest way of describing it. You are not at risk of being involuntarily committed. Even though um, there has been a legal finding that you were under a mental health issue, uh, incapable of appreciating that your actions were wrong at the time that you committed them, um, due to the unique nature of this particular defense, they will not involuntarily commit you for that. So, so you do have a little bit of a, of a wider opportunity with it, but yeah. it's in a very limited, narrow category of mm -hmm. – of defenses, um, rightfully or wrongfully, jurors tend to take the opinion that, well, I would have left that situation, so why didn't they leave that situation? Uh, that makes it a little bit harder to sell with it. Mm -hmm. um, it a, a lot of things, is, as we're recording this right now, of course, one of the major things that's going on in, in the media is the, the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard defamation trial. And there's a lot of discussion about the concept of intimate partner violence and domestic violence and how that does or doesn't play out and what actually happens with those. Uh, we are woefully bad at, at accurately relating that, accurately uh, providing that, that message to people. Um, and that, this, that can be a difficult defense to proceed forward with simply because, sure. again, there's the concept of I want to put up with this. So, mm -hmm. you know, that person doesn't get to get away with it. So it, it, it's, it's a complicated one. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, sympathy, empathy, all those things right. creeping into a juror's mind in those kind of moments. I, so I can I hear you on the difficulty associated with that. Mm -hmm. Jack, let's bring it home here. Final affirmative defense that you typically see that 10th one, this idea of necessity. What are we talking about here? Necessity is, as I said, this is the common law one. This one mm -hmm. is not statutory. It's just always been there. The idea is like sometimes you have to break the law because of reasons. The defense of necessity um, has a number of things that have to be shown beyond a reasonable doubt before you can claim the defense of necessity. You have to show that the criminal act is the result of an emergency. You have to show that there was no adequate alternative to committing the criminal act. You have to show that the harm caused by the criminal act was not disproportionate to the harm avoided. You have to show as the defendant that you had a good faith belief that to prevent the harm, you had to break the law. That belief has to have been objectively reasonable under the totality of the circumstances. And the defendant had to not substantially contribute to the creation of the emergency to uh, get the uh, argument of necessity. Um, I've seen this. I, I have actually had one necessity to defense and a very good friend of mine has had a necessity to defense as well both of which came in the context of driving uh, mm. my friend's necessity to defense involves someone who was charged with an operating while intoxicated offense but his situation involved he was leaving a bar and he was being mugged and it was one of those things where he managed to get enough separation between himself he and his wife managed to get enough separation between themselves and the people that were uh, threatening to rob them as they were leaving a bar and they were able to get into their own car and drive off where they were promptly stopped for speeding. And, and of course they both smelled like distilleries. 
um the argument they made was you know it was necessary for us to do this because if we stayed there we would have been stabbed you know we would have been robbed that's terrible you know the harm that we created uh by acting in our drunk driving situation um that is that is not you know that 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 harm uh is not greater than the harm that we would have suffered had we stayed there to get robbed right um that one, I, I would have to ask my friend. It's been a while since he, this is he and I talked about that one. I don't think that one worked for him. Um, DUI cases are really, really hard. If there's any opportunity to hold someone responsible for voluntary intoxication, they're going to do it. So just, sure. again, involuntary intoxication, okay. Voluntary intoxication, you sort of invited <laughs> this on yourself. Right. Right. My necessity defense uh, was a little bit. It was a little bit better. It was again in the context of of a driving offense. Uh, one of the things that can happen in Indiana if you have too many moving violations is the the State Bureau of Motor Vehicles can suspend your driving privileges as being a habitual traffic violator. Oh, that wow. would make it a felony for you to operate a vehicle while you were under those conditions. Mm-hmm. My situation involved a a defendant who was he worked for a, he worked for a uh, trucking company. He was basically he was he was a loader on onloader offloader. Mm-hmm. Um, his coworker, who was the one that was actually driving the truck, you know, my, my client didn't have a CDL. He was not licensed to drive. It was very much one of those things. Like he, everyone knew he's here to help load and unload. Mm-hmm. Um, his, his, the driver, the coworker started having a medical emergency a- oh, wow. and I can't remember specifically what it was, but it's one of those things where it was very clearly, you know, the, you know, almost like a stroke situation, kind of like drifting off, nodding, sort of like just drifting into traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, my client basically forced him to pull over and due to the condition, got behind the wheel of the vehicle to drive him to a hospital mm-hmm. and he, he got pulled over. Um, he got pulled over by the state police because they were just on the lookout for, for big box trucks to, to get their quotas. I know a couple state troopers, they would be angry for me to say that, but they were totally getting quotas. <laughs> um, pulled him over, realized that, oh, well, you're not supposed to be driving. You have a uh, suspended license as a felony. Also, let's call an ambulance for this guy who's passed out in the driver's seat. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the co-worker eventually got the medical attention that he needed. Sure. Um, but when that case came up, that was one of the issues that we argued successfully. Is like, look, you know, there was no – he's already in a vehicle. Yeah. Who knows how long it would take for an ambulance to get here. There is something seriously wrong. This is a necessity. You know, there was no there was no adequate alternative. Mm-hmm. You know, who knows how long it would take for an ambulance to get here. Right. And what was the result of that? Um, that one was an acquittal. We did, we did get them to acquit on that one. Um, so that one worked out. That was that was a nice result mm-hmm. on that. We were very happy with the outcome on that one. Not happy that it got that far, but again, prosecutors sure. don't allow me to make their charging decisions for them. <laughs> yes, understandably so. Um, Jack, we've covered the ten, you know, affirmative defenses that you typically see throughout, you know, today's day and age in criminal law and just court as a whole. I, I'm sure there's a contingency of people out there that are thinking, well, how does how does this differ from an alibi? You know, why, why do they not just have an alibi for some of these things? Could you, before we wrap up our episode today, kind of tie a knot for our audience and, and really split the difference between that, what an affirmative affirmative defense is versus what a true alibi is given, given, you know, a particular case. Sure. An alibi is actually not an affirmative defense. That's, that's the first thing that's a major difference between the two. 
an alibi is an argument of impossibility. You were arguing that it was impossible for me to have committed this crime because I was somewhere else. Alibi is not an affirmative defense because it doesn't change the burden. Again, remember what the state needs to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to get a conviction is they need to prove that a crime happened and they need to prove that the person on trial for the crime uh, was responsible for it. All of these other, all of the affirmative defenses, it represents a change to what the state needs to prove because by pleading an affirmative defense, you're saying, yes, I did it, but here's my legal justification for why I did it. With an alibi, you're arguing, I did not do this. It legitimately was not me because I was across town on camera accepting an award for the mayor. That's an evidentiary issue. That's not an affirmative defense because you're not arguing that a crime didn't happen. You're just arguing that you were not the person who committed the crime. It's an actual innocent style defense. Right. So with regards to an alibi, what you're doing with the alibi defense is, is you're raising that as an issue. You're putting evidence on in your case in chief as the defendant. And the jury is able to examine that evidence and make the determination as to whether or not they believe the alibi defense um, and, and your witnesses as the defendant are credible enough to establish that, okay, no, this mm -hmm. defendant did not commit this crime. We cannot find this defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Got it. Got it. But there is that fundamental difference where an affirmative defense, it is, it is a true admission that the crime happened. Correct. But, you know, you're not legally responsible for the crime because of this defense. The alibi on the flip side. Hey, I wasn't there. I, I had nothing exactly. to do with it, you know. So exactly. yeah, you're you're maintaining that sense of of being truly innocent. So right. fundamental difference there. I'm sure there was a contingency of our audience today. There's scratching their head a little bit between, you know, trying to identify that difference. So I appreciate you, uh, you know, clearing that up for us. And and Jack, as we're kind of bringing our episode here to a head, you know, we covered all these affirmative defenses. Clearly, you have experience in working with many of these. You have stories, obviously, to share with us. If anybody out there in our audience is maybe going through a, a, a tough time or a tough situation and maybe they're interested in reaching out to you and your team to just talk about you know maybe a situation where an affirmative defense may come into play for them given maybe certain you know incidents that have transpired you know, transpired in their life what would be the best way that somebody could reach out to you and your team at Razumich and Associates to just open up a dialogue as always, the best way to reach us is by telephone. Our telephone number here at the office is area code 317983 5333. Uh, we do have operators that are answering our phone uh, at all times. Uh, we, we take calls at two in the morning and someone answers that telephone. You talk to a live person, that message gets to the senior staff. Uh, and we do get the calls returned as quickly as we possibly can. That's always the easiest and best way to reach out to us if you have questions about this, if you have questions about another area of law that you're dealing with. Um, not every case does involve an affirmative defense just because a crime has some elements that might be covered by an affirmative defense. If that affirmative defense isn't there, you're not going to be able to use it. You can't just make them up out of whole cloth. But a good attorney, of course, is going to be able to provide you with an evaluation as to your options, as to the specific fact pattern and circumstances that you're dealing with, and can tell you whether or not any of those affirmative defenses or any other defenses are going to be applicable to your case. Roger that. Well, Jack, look, I appreciate you carving some time out of your day to be with us here on the show, to walk us through these different affirmative defenses and uh, looking forward to getting back together with you on the next one. Absolutely. 
Alrighty, thanks, Jack. And look, hey, we want to take one final moment, as always, and thank you guys, our audience, for jumping aboard and being with us here on the show today. If you enjoyed today's episode, maybe you took something away from it, do us a favor, hit that like button. Go ahead and subscribe to the show, whichever platform you're checking us out on today. And then, of course, share this information with any friends or family that you think would benefit from these types of discussions. You know, we, we said it before, we'll say it again. We're taking the same types of, you know, conversations, strategies, solutions that Jack is working on with his clients over at Razumich and Associates, and we're bringing them right here to you on this show. And as you probably heard today, we've got some topics queued up for some future episodes that we couldn't really dive fully into today, maybe because we we're going to address them in a future episode. And with all this future content coming, we'd hate to have you miss out on any of those beneficial episodes. So for Jack, I'm Ryan. We're going to go ahead and say so long, but we appreciate you being with us on today's installment of Closing Arguments. 